Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Thursday, the 18th of November. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let me give a let me cover a couple of national headlines um, here as we start off today. Recognizing that every time we talk about a national headline, we're talking about a headline that's personal to someone. And so, just consider that for a moment. Um, when we talk about a national headline, we're cons- we're talking about headlines that are personal to someone. So verdicts are being handed down uh, for those involved in the January 6th riots that breached the U.S. Capitol, injured police, threatened members of Congress and the Vice President Mike Pence, and sought unsuccessfully to subvert the normal transfer of power through the constitutionally mandated ratification of the Electoral College process. Yes, I spent a lot of time constructing that sentence. And yes, I said it exactly as I intended. Here's what's happening. Uh, Perhaps the man who became the face of the January 6th riot, uh, bare-chested, wearing horns, carrying a flag that was tipped with a six-inch spear blade, pictured howling in the face of Capitol Police in some images, um, and pictured in a video posted online praying in the well of the U.S. Senate. His name is Jacob Chansley. He has been sentenced to 41 months including the 10 months um, that he has served. He was seeking to be released for the 10 months that he has served. He is remorseful. He is also, by the admission of his own defense attorneys, mentally ill. He testified in court that he felt that President Trump had called him to the Capitol, and he also testified that he felt personally betrayed when President Trump did not then pardon him and the others involved on January the 6th. This is... An ongoing, unfolding story. And you're going to read it today or hear it today discussed as a national headline. I want us to remember this is a very personal headline to not only the individual named here and discussed here, but to those of us who care about the mentally ill in this country. Um, Because this is a person who needs treatment and we are incarcerating him. There is a huge conversation to be had here about um, the resources that Jacob has available to him should he have been released and returned home where he told the judge many of his family members continue to believe that President Trump should be um, reinstated as the president of the United States. So here's the challenge. If we release Jacob, where does he go? So for those of you who are thinking to yourselves, Jacob shouldn't be in prison. Where would he go? Where would he go? It's a serious conversation we have have to have as pro-life people in the country today. All right, OSHA, um, OSHA, which is, um, you know, responsible for what we do in places of work. Um, OSHA has suspended the implementation of President Biden's vaccine mandate. That is significant. So the OSHA website page 
which was dedicated to the COVID vaccine emergency temporary standard, known as the ETS, um, now reads, while OSHA remains confident in its authority to protect workers in emergencies, OSHA has suspended activities related to the implementation and enforcement of the ETS. Remember, that's the emergency temporary standard pending future developments in the litigation. So this is um, being actively litigated. Last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit blocked President Biden's executive order requiring companies with over 100 workers to mandate vaccinations for their employees um, after temporarily staying that order in um, on November the 12th. So it's now permanently stayed. And so the court ordered that OSHA take no steps to implement or enforce the vaccine mandate until further court order, which is frankly not likely to be forthcoming. But neither is this um, neither is this over. All right. Let's um, let's take a pause here and pivot to a conversation with our friend Ben Johnson, who is waiting in the wings. We're going to we're going to talk about one of the more basic questions. Um, And it's it is a question. um, It is a question about truth. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. All right, Ben Johnson is back. He is a media reporter at The Daily Wire. I'm going to start with some very direct questions of inquiry this morning. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. I am ready, Counselor. All right. So um, under the U.S. Constitution, as a woman, am I equal in all of my rights to you as a man? Under the Constitution, you are equal. However, under the statutory uh, law that has been passed in multiple states as well as the United States, in many regards, you have superior rights to men. Yeah. So let's talk about the ERA. There's going to be people listening right now who are like, oh, my goodness, I thought that was generations ago that we um, that we were talking about the ERA. But we're talking about the ERA Equal Rights Amendment again. Why? um, Why is it why is it in our conversation this morning, and who who's talking about it where? Yeah, well, you know, put on your platform shoes and your bell bottoms, and let's go back to the 70s to talk about the ERA for a minute. Uh, of course, the uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was passed uh, back in the 1970s, and they were given a ratification period. It passed Congress. Once uh, an, a, an amendment to the Constitution passes Congress, then it goes to the states. You have to get ratification at a certain number of states, and they had— Part of the bill was they had a time frame to pass this. So uh, that required number had to be met. Uh, originally, it was it was uh, just a few years. They extended it to 1983. And it built up a head of steam, you might remember. Several states passed because it's how could you be against equal rights? But uh, there was a lady in Alton, Illinois, named Phyllis Schlafly, who took a closer look at the law. And she more or less single-handedly began a movement like we're seeing in schools today, but it was a movement of parents, particularly movement of women, uh, particularly married women who looked at the law and said, this would be, this would actually cost us rights. Uh, This would be harmful to us. 
And so not only did they stop, uh, the, the amendment fell short just by a couple of states. So they decided to extend the period to 1983. During that time, no additional states came out in favor of the ERA, and five states rescinded their support of the ERA. The time limit ran out in 1983. We were very young at that point. Most of your, your listeners were either younger or not alive at that point. Uh, so so at, that, at that moment, it should have been over. Just recently, the last three states ratified that, including the state of Virginia. So... The Democrats held a hearing in the House uh, led by Representative Carolyn Maloney of New York saying that the ERA has been passed. It is now part of the Constitution. Now, you say 1983 was a long time ago. We've already passed the uh, the period. They're saying that uh, because that was in the statute and not in the congressional, uh, it was in the congressional statute, but not in the amendment itself, that it was not legally binding. The Trump administration on January 15th very important we note that date because it's five days before the end of the Trump administration, was asked about this and they put forward an opinion saying that obviously 1983 has expired. Uh, you know, operator, do not send me back to 1982 or 83. We're not going back there. And so that's not going to happen. But uh, instead, they are calling on the Biden administration to void that and say that the time limit doesn't matter and the ERA is now part of the Constitution. And if they do that, by the way, the first people to uh, rejoice will be the abortion industry because uh, the uh, NARAL put out a web page, which it's since deleted, saying that this guarantees the right to abortion. It would statutorily go into the Constitution, just as the underlying decision of Roe v. Wade is finally being called into question. Yeah, it's worth going back and reading um, what the e- what the Equal Rights Amendment actually says um, for those of you who, you know, have slept since 1972 or 1983, uh, you know, there's there's language in there. And we talk about something being being added to the Constitution. We're talking about the the thing in our um, system of governance that's actually the most difficult to change. And so one of the things that occurs to me is if by a simple vote of a majority of people in any particular Congress can set aside the time limit, in this case, set aside the time limit that expired in 1983, which is kind of bizarre just thinking of it that way. But could they not then set aside the time limit related to any anything else they wanted to amend the Constitution to say? I mean, it seems like it's terrible precedent to subvert the process of constitutional amendment by having a simple majority vote um, of a particular Congress that could set aside the time limit. Well, it's also unconstitutional. You know, one of the things the Constitution does say is that Congress will make no ex post facto law. And of course, ex post facto is, is Latin for after the fact. So if you commit it, if you do something that's legal, they can't say we're passing a law to make that illegal and it applies to you, uh, you know, from something you've already done. In this case, they, they set a, a limit. It it expired 38 years ago, if I'm doing my math right, and I wouldn't hold me to that. But uh, almost 40 years ago, it expired, and now they want to say, we're, we're moving the goalposts. It's, it's, it shows a complete and utter lack of respect for, uh, obviously, for precedent, which they're always talking about in Roe v. Wade, but it shows a complete and utter lack of respect for the ground rules that have been used uh, over and over again. It's a complete power grab 
literally to change and amend the Constitution. And it stamps on the rights of those states which have rescinded their support. It's officially what I would call a shenanigan. All right. So uh, Ben Johnson and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to um, we're going to talk about the child care plan proposed by the president of the United States and the resistance that it is facing from religious groups, including very likely a church based school near you. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson. He writes uh, at the Daily Wire, which you can find at dailywire.com. He also tweets as the rights writer. Um, ben, what um, what has the president proposed in terms of a child care plan that religious groups are resisting? Well, it's part of the Build Back Better Act. Uh, this uh, idea of universal pre-K is the language that they always use. And uh, it's $400 billion that would be dedicated to sort of an Obamacare for daycare, if you want to look at it that way. It uses the same kind of formula where uh, you can spend, if you make a certain amount of money, you won't spend more than a certain percentage of your income, and the state will have a sliding subsidy, sort of like the way that it does for health care. But uh, one of the hidden gems within this, uh, from, from their perspective, is that it would exclude a lot of religious daycare centers. So uh, there's there's a big concern about this. The exact wording from the bill is that it cannot be, quote, used primarily for sectarian instruction or religious worship. Uh, that is for a facility that uh, primarily operates for sectarian or religious worship. So in other words, your church daycare cannot participate in this plan as it is. So that's, that is a discriminatory aspect in itself. Ironically, the other aspect is they want you not to discriminate, even though they're discriminating against you based on viewpoint. Uh, there is language in here that uh, uh, talks about how all of those who participate in this have to participate in the non-discrimination law that has been passed or as it is currently recognized by the U.S. government. Well, that, that includes religion, so you can't necessarily, if, if you are a religious institution, you can't say, I want someone from my church or someone who's a practicing Christian to be part of this. You also, for the most part, uh, for example, uh, would not be able to, quote-unquote, discriminate on the basis of, say, gender identity. And when we're talking about daycare, pre-K, then you begin to see how this would be exclusionary for an awful lot of religious daycares. And uh, so you know, the, uh, the Catholic bishops, the Orthodox Jewish organizations have all said, this is, uh, this is discriminatory. Uh, I believe it's very clear that it violates current uh, standing precedent. In Espinoza, the uh, 2020 case that was just decided about religious scholarships, Justice uh, Roberts wrote, a state need not subsidize private education, but once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. So if, if I would assume this would hold very much in, in any kind of public accommodation, we have Supreme Court precedent going back uh, 35, 40 years on this at a minimum, that uh, if you are allowing something to be used by everyone, then you can't exclude people if those people are religious and you shouldn't be forcing uh, churches that are accepting this to change their point of view when it comes to certain issues that are moral uh, or that are simply about the reality of how Christians perceive anthropology, namely male and female created he them. 
Yeah, it feels like, Ben, that some of what's going on here is a desire by those who have crafted this language and this legislation, um, their desire to be sure that children who are not currently enrolled in any kind of a preschool environment don't enroll in those that are affiliated with religious institutions of any kind. Um, I suspect that those who are already um, enrolled in in programs that are provided through and by churches and synagogues and mosques and other religious affiliated um, organizations and institutions um, are not likely going to pull their kids out. But I think what we're talking about here is the massive number of kids who this program is designed to benefit by getting them into um, government schooling earlier. That's what this feels like to me. And so I recognize from a, you know, from a religious liberty viewpoint, there's an argument to be made. But I think that for those of us who are really seeking to see what's happening here, you know, the government does not want more children educated in the fear of the Lord. The The government wants more children educated in the way the government wants to educate children, and they want to do so earlier and earlier. So I just think we just need to be super duper sober about what is going on here um, and not not get overly concerned about um, existing programs uh, at at school, at churches and mosques and um, and synagogues. Um, but let's be really vigilant about what's happening. It's just a, this is a least of these conversation. These are already mm-hmm. kids not being advantaged in this way. And the government wants to make sure that the education that they received is is not religiously influenced. Well, and you're absolutely right. That's the key uh, that's motivating everything behind this. The idea that uh, the, the sooner that they can get their tentacles into and wrapped around children, then uh, they will be able to influence the uh, the education that is given to them. And as we found out, quite often parents don't have any idea what's happening. And if they do, they don't have any say. They're excluded. So that's uh, they're excluded from decision making about their own children. And when they want to lower that to, say, age three, then you're really talking about uh, not only big, big brother, but big mother stepping in at mm-hmm. that point. And so that's that's a big issue. And and uh, quite frankly, you're right that uh, there is a massive exclusion of people who are believers from the mainstream that that went on under Obamacare, went on under the HHS mandate. And uh, there's even a move in Michigan. Uh, there's a, a progressive group that's trying to keep churches from being used as voting centers. Uh, even even if they're doing it for free, they, they want to donate their their church so that they can come in and people can come in and vote. A lot of people, when they vote, vote inside a church. They're saying that uh, that influences people and the way that they vote, and uh, we should not be uh, allowing people to be influenced by religious imagery. Uh, you know, like people's eyes are being defiled by the image of a cross or something when they walk into a church. So that's how secular society is becoming and how exclusionary they're becoming to people who are Christians. They're moving toward a two-tier system. This is just another step toward the secularization of future uh, future generations. And I hope that uh, people like Joe Manchin and others will see through it and vote against it. Yeah, that situation in Michigan is very, very interesting. The, um, you know, the the quotes in the AP article um, related to that 
you know, feature this woman named Mary Clark. She's president of the Michigan Association of Municipal Clerks. She's the clerk in Delta Township, which is located near Lansing. And she says there's a growing panic. I mean, listen to that word about the implications, whether they're intended or unintended consequences is irrelevant. They're consequences to voters. The the ban on any in-kind contribution would be devastating. And she's noting there that in the township of 33,000 residents, there are 16 precincts. Twelve of them are located in uh, in 10 places of worship. It's just it's just it's pretty um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so anyway. All right. We we're going to circle back around to that story, Ben, at a later time. Um, love talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, let's be reading what Ben's writing at dailywire.com. We got to take a very brief break and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. So November is National Adoption Month. The adoption statistics here in the United States are pretty staggering. There are currently right now, as of today, just over 107,000 children in the United States of America who are adoption eligible, and that is just through foster care. 107,000 adoption eligible children. Um, That means there's 107,000 kids who don't have a family that supports them, that when they age out of foster care will continue to be their family of support. Um, 107,000 kids. All right, so only about 2% of Americans have adopted, um, and yet there are a lot of us, one in every 25 U.S. families that have an adopted member somewhere in their you know, family network. And so I want you to just think about your own adoption story. Maybe you are adopted. Maybe you have um, an adopted family member about 135,000 children are adopted in the United States every year. Um, but a lot of those are like step-parent adoptions or they are family member adoptions, grandparents adopting their grandchildren, um, aunts and uncles adopting their nieces and nephews. 26% of adoptions in the United States of America are actually um, international adoptions. um, of the kids who come into U.S. families each year come from overseas. And 15% from what are called voluntarily relinquished American babies. So I'm just saying there's lots of stats out there related to adoption. You have an adoption story, so do I. As Christians, we've been adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. We're going to talk now with, um, with Mary Beth Chapman, um, you know her as the wife of Stephen Curtis Chapman. She is also, um, she, has a, she has an adoption story of her own to tell. And we're going to talk about the adoption ministry of Show Hope. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says, The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. C.S. Lewis, in his eloquent way, is saying this, You have the present moment to do your responsibilities, to handle what's been given to you, and to experience the grace of God. You can't live in the future. You can't live in the past. You have right now. When it comes to raising teens, you may wish you were at a different point in life, that the kids were past this stage. But in reality, today is exactly what God has given you. What are you going to do with today? 
Mom and Dad, live in the moment. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org. That's ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Welcome today, Mary Beth Chapman, to the show. You um, you might recognize her from her husband, five-time Grammy Award-winning recording artist Stephen Curtis Chapman. Mary Beth and uh, and Stephen have a large family. Um, some of their children came to them through adoption, and they have then extended that blessing through an organization called Show Hope. And Mary Beth joins us today to talk about Show Hope and to talk about the Hope for the Journey conference. Mary Beth, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for having me. Hope you all are doing well. Absolutely. We are doing well. We hope you're doing well um, as well. I am. I am. You know, uh, you need to need to add to my husband's list of things, chief Christmas decorator. That's what we've been doing around here the last (laughs) day or so. So he's been my he's been my head elf. That's good. I love that. Everyone needs a head elf. All right. So um, let's talk about adoption. Let's talk about the need. Let's talk about the joy. Let's share some stories. Um, Let's, uh, you know, in the spirit, let's show hope. So um, where do you want to start in terms uh, of sharing um, the adoptive need and the hope with those who are listening now? Yeah, well, you know, listen, uh, we we started our family our adoption journey part of our family back in 1999 my daughter and i took a trip to haiti and saw the need um so prevalently in haiti and and she at the at that time my 11 year old emily who is now the executive director of show hope which is amazing how god brings that circle you know or that story full circle she's 35 years old but anyways at 11 years old she really began asking us questions that really caused Stephen and i to go on a faith journey of asking if God would grow our family through adoption. And that um, ended up in the adoption of our three youngest children, um, Shoei, Stevie Joy, and our sweet Maria, who's now with Jesus. And um, and really at that point in time, in, in 2000, all I knew is that I had been radically um, blessed by this story of adoption. I realized my own story and my own spiritual adoption in Jesus when I stood in the hotel room of um, in China receiving Shohana. And I just felt like at that point um, in time that we needed to get the word out that there were children all over the world, not just in China, but here in our backyard, domestically and worldwide that needed the permanency of a family. And so at that point, um, the need was financial, just a massive need of financialness, if you if you will, um, that families, you know, just the insurmountable cost of adoption. And still today, adoptions can be anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $50,000. And so really Show Hope was founded in 2003 to really begin to offset the cost of adoption and really partner with families who long to build their um, families through adoption. And as Show Hope has um, journeyed on in years, we have also begun to see the need. Um, we really work in three key areas, uh, areas excuse me, to, um, to um, um, kind of break down the barriers. Our mission is to Um, care for orphans by engaging the church. And we do that in three key areas. We do that 
um, with the financial barrier, the knowledge barrier, and the medical barrier. And so um, all of those can be insurmountable costs, right, and emotional cost. And so we began working in pre and post adoption services. Some of these kiddos come home with um, invisible suitcases. We all have invisible suitcases, but these kiddos have some emotional trauma and some early childhood attachment wounds. And so we really long to go deeper with families. And so we started our pre and post adoption resources to kind of um, kind of kind of break down the barrier to the knowledge, you know, not helping families not be so um, fearful in the journey. Um, and mm -hmm. then we also want to break down the medical barrier. And so in the last year, we really began to uh, dig deep and see what that would look like as we transitioned our medical care work out of China. And so we have begun to give medical care grants to families of adopted children who really uh, still have insurmountable medical care costs. And so we really work in those three key areas. We still have a student initiative part of our work because it all started with a pesky 11-year-old who just would <laughs> not stop praying for her family. Um, and she constantly told us that we had room at our table. And so we really took serious the, the heart of an 11-year-old and, and again, began to pray. And, you know, some 20 years later, this is where I sit talking to you about all the work that the amazing folks over at Show Hope do. And I love being a part of it today. So that's kind of in a nutshell. That was a big breath. But anyway. No, that's that, good. That, it's... um. It's just incredible. If you're listening right now and you want to um, understand more about each and every one of these um, key aspects of the ministry, the adoption aid grants, maybe you want to know more about the medical care grants, maybe you just want to better understand the need. If you go to showhope.org and click on stories, um, there's just tons of great resources right there. Um, it's a really easy website to navigate. So let me encourage you, showhope.org. Dot O-R-G. Uh, Mary Beth Chapman is my guest today. The, uh, the subject matter is adoption. And, you know, each and every one of us as, uh, as Christians, we are adopted into the family of faith. Like we're not native born. This is not, you know, you don't, you don't get to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven by birth. You get to be there by rebirth and by adoption through Jesus Christ. And so adoption is a part of our story as Christians. And it's a huge expression of the way God is at work in the lives of believers and through um, through the church as the family is extended to vulnerable children um, who are very much in need of a forever home. Mary Beth, you know um, as well as anybody that the adoption journey doesn't, I think the way you phrased it is, it doesn't end the day a child is welcome home. In fact, that's just, just the beginning. Um, why don't you right. tell us a little bit about that? Because parents, parents and others they need a lot going forward um, in terms of caring for these precious children entrusted to them. Right. So, you know, I think in 1999, 2000, when Stephen and I really, when we started on this journey, I think um, in a, a moment of naivety, we don't know what we don't know, right? And um, we had just been captured with this um, gloriously hard journey. It's glorious and it's hard all at once, but we, I think Stephen and I um, really thought that that love was enough, but not realizing that um, once once the adoption journey has, has been completed as far as paperwork and you've done the travel and you've brought the child into your home, just how, um, how difficult it can be, how awesome it can be, how sleepless it can be, just all the things, right, that goes into um, beginning to parent a child 
who who has really suffered some early attachment wounds and some early trauma in their life just just simply being separated from the birth parent right and so we really began to um really hear stories we were you know giving adoption aid grants and people were christian families were stepping up and into the river so to speak to adopt some of these children and really began to hear stories of just real need um, emotional support um, practical tool support, all the different things of just, you know, where do we go when we kind of hit a brick wall and some of this parenting can be really difficult. And so that's where we began to really start looking at the work of Show Hope and say, what what can we do now? Stephen and I have always had this idea of going deeper, not wider. And so we really were kind of faced with our own kind of missional purpose to go now, what can we do with families? And so that the very, the next natural step was to begin putting together some pre and post adoption resources. And so we do that through, we, um, we fund, we work closely with a, um, the TCU, uh, Texas Christian University and their Care and Purpose Institute of Child Development. We really feel like this work that they've spent years developing and working uh, trust-based relational intervention is a great tool. So we really seek to try to help as many people find out about that as possible. We, we scholarship a lot of professionals, counselors, judges, court workers, parents, people, lay workers, pastors, anybody that, um, you know, that has close contact with children from difficult um, past and have trauma in their life. We really try to kind of step into that as much as possible. So we, we scholarship a lot of professionals and we um, work closely with them. We, we um, offer a, a conference every year called Hope for the Journey Conference and really seek to, um, to get that into the hands of parents and churches. Um, you can find out, like you just said, more about that at showhope.org. Um, hey, Mary so Beth, really, can we, yes. can we, can we just pause our conversation for just a yes. moment? Cause we need just we just need to take a network break, but when we come back, let's yeah. talk specifically about the 2022 sure. hope for the journey conference. I'm talking with Mary Beth Chapman and we'll be right back. All right, picking up where we left off in our conversation with Mary Beth Chapman, we are talking about all kinds of resources that you can find at showhope.org. That's showhope.org. One of the things that is highlighted um, at the website is information about the 2022 Hope for the Journey Conference. So it's going to be a little bit different um, uh, in, in terms of the way I uh, have been exposed to conferences in the past. There's really an opportunity for folks to not only engage, but to engage over time and engage in community in their churches. This is a really cool approach. Can you can you talk with us about this? Yeah, so um, it, is, um, it is an on-demand conference, so you can watch it from anywhere in the world. We have people from all over the world watch it. It's going to permit premiere on April 8th, 2022. And again, you can find out more about it at showhope.org. Um, and um, yeah, we really, it's a one day simulcast and we really long to shepherd parents and caregivers to an understanding of the child's needs. Um, we love introducing um, resources and sharing practical experiences. Um, and so it is just a real way. What we have seen is just um, giving hope to parents and helping people really see that they're not alone in the journey. 
Um, we have folks from TCU come and speak. We'll, ha we'll have all kinds of perspectives from different professionals that um, work in the area of pre and post adoption and attachment services. So it is a, it's a real, it's, it's, it's super important um, if you've already brought a child into your home, but it is also a real critical, um, great tool to put in your tool belt, so to speak, if you're even considering adopting or at the beginning of the process. So we kind of cover it all. So we're um, really excited and, um, and um, hopeful that more and more people will sign up and come see us um, at the conference. I love that. So Mary Beth, I, um, I am a grandma to Coda, who came into our family through foster care and adoption. Um, and Coda's got, you know, two, two brothers in his family as well. Talk with me as a grandma. Um, I mean, obviously, I feel the same way about all three of those little boys. But I also know that they're not necessarily all three going to feel the same way about themselves or each other. You have, um, you have that in your own family. Can you just talk with me a little bit about that? Um, yeah, um, you know, we, we have, um, we are a pretty close family, you know, there's, there's six of us, uh, six children, you know, starting with Emily, who's 35, all the way down to Stevie Joy now, who just turned 19, I'm an empty mm. nester. Um, the two youngest, Joey and Stevie Joy, are at University of Alabama, so this fall has been a really interesting uh, journey for myself, even emotionally, as I've kind of stepped into that whole empty nest world, but um you know, when we first um, w uh, stepped into the adoption process, um, again, I think we didn't know what we didn't know, and we became a family, and, you know, we didn't see Showy, Stevie, Maria as any different than our own, you know, family. It was just our family, right? Um, I think as the years went by, it, it for me personally as a grandmother, which which it's kind of interesting for me because I've got, I've got, I've got my, I call them my natural children and my supernatural children. There's nine, mm. there's a nine year gap between the first three. And then there's a nine year gap. And then um, the three that were brought home to me through the miracle of adoption. Right. And then my first three started having children. So it's like, I've got three, <laughs> then a break, and then three more that I'm parenting and then a break. And then now my grandchildren, you know, and, you know, I think Carmen, that bumper sticker is true. If I would have known grandchildren were going to be so great, I would have had them first, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, um, but I've really, I, I think that I kind of grandparent my younger, my, my young grandchildren, kind of like I parented my adopted, my supernatural crew, because I wish I would have had some of the tools and resources and just some of the parenting techniques and just the, the, um, you know, the patience that I had with my last three for my first three. And I'm sure my first three would probably, um, <laughs> probably say a hearty amen to that. I, I always tell people I can write the book on what not to do. Um, but, but by God's grace, we were all pretty close and, and tightly knit. So, um, it's just a journey that we're still in the process of, but, um, you know, it, it, it is, you know, one day it is a, it's a beautiful and the next day it's a beautiful mess. So we just mm -hmm. keep journeying on and, and, and learning more and more about the heartbeat of Jesus and how he loved, um, and how he loved, I guess that's a big period at the end of that, just how he loved Amen. period. <laughs> so if you're listening right now, um, I just want you to consider that there are millions of children in the world, an additional 1.5 million 
orphaned specifically by COVID in the last 18 months, millions of children in the world um, who are orphaned. Um, and they all long for a forever home. And yeah, there are international borders and there are racial divides and there are economic challenges and there are health concerns, but children um, everywhere long for a forever home. And we just want to see if God might be tenderizing the hearts of some who are listening now, uh, maybe tenderizing the heart of your church as a faith community to support a family within your congregation um, that might have adoption uh, on their heart as the way that God intends to build their family. So let's be people who show hope. um, And I just encourage you to go to the Show Hope website to get um, resources. And if you're, um, if you're, interested, we'd love for you to participate in the 2022 Hope for the Journey conference. You can find all the information at showhope.org. Mary Beth Chapman, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Likewise. We'll be right back. When love you in, everything All right, do you recognize this music? <clears throat> it is associated with Steamboat Willie. Apparently on this day in 1928, a Mickey Mouse animated short was uh, rolled for the first time. Paul Perot has more information. Well, yeah, first time in theaters because that's how it was released back in 1928. But uh, the first Mickey Mouse um, cartoon was released by Disney. So, yeah. So, so... Who was Steamboat Willie? Do you know? That was the character Mickey Mouse was playing. He was called Steamboat oh. Willie. He was originally called Steamboat Willie? Um, I don't I'm know if they actually more. had a name for him yet um, mm-hmm. as Mickey Mouse, but he mm-hmm. almost got named Mortimer so, Mouse. Uh-huh. Almost. So the, the actor now known as Mickey Mouse, the character yes, now yes, known yes, as yes, Mickey yes, Mouse, okay. formerly known as Steamboat <laughs> Willie, made his first appearance in theaters during an animated short on this day in 1928. How were you formerly known? This would be a conversation we could have about, like, uh, the Apostle Paul, formerly known as the gangster dude that sought to kill Christians. No, the Pharisee Saul. Or maybe you would like to talk today about uh, Peter the Rock, formerly known as a fisherman from Galilee. Right? All right. So this is an opportunity. Paul has just teed up an opportunity Uh, Mickey Mouse, formerly known as Steamboat Willie. How were you formerly known before you knew Christ and he transformed your life? Not that Mickey Mouse is redeemed, but you get the idea. All right, you got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.